Hi guys, hope everyone's well and welcome back to the Improvement Podcast. In episode 144, I'm going to go over a Q&A, uh, basically with questions that folk have asked me, uh, either through social media, clients have asked me, or any other kind of frequently asked questions, and just go over an episode, kind of going over them all. So in terms of a quick update on myself before I jump into it, as it's been quite a long while since I've done it, so I am currently, as we speak, I think four days away or three days away three and a half you could say, days away from starting prep which I'm really excited for. So I've just run a deload week last week and it's now been my, I've had three sessions back into normal training, full volume training, eh, not trying to kind of drop fatigue or recover and kind of reset you could say. And yeah, things are going pretty well. I'm nursing kind of a lower back issue that has stemmed from a leg press and doing like an RDL which I've kind of tweaked it on so that's not been amazing. Uh, but I'm still able to kind of do everything else and injuries are kind of part of the process of training, of training hard consistently over time and trying to maximise your physique development so you shouldn't kind of get super kind of upset or throw your toys out the pram if you get injured because it's part of the process. It happens to everyone and it's just something that you've got to learn to kind of work around, stay level-headed with. But yeah, things are going pretty well and body weight is sitting at 186 pounds so i'm in quite a good starting position for prep i'm not too heavy i'm not got too much fat to take off my lowest weight last prep was 159 pounds so as a result i'd only need to kind of if i got to the same weight uh, let's say i do then i've only got kind of 27 pounds to take off and i'm giving myself another month to do so so i'm in a much better starting position too get lean and uh, retain muscle tissue through appropriate rate of loss as a result of that. So yeah, jumping into the episode, I'm going to first touch on the difference between an RDL and stiff leg and basically uh, folk have a different, folk will perceive these two movements as kind of different things based on who you can have asked. For myself, I base an RDL as when you are basically doing like a hip hinge movement, you are stopping just kind of, you're focusing on pushing hips back and you're stop, stopping mid chin round about there. Whereas a stiff leg deadlift, I'd class that as pulling off the floor and obviously loading the bar down, down afterwards and not focusing as much on kind of shifting the hips back and focus more on just keeping the legs stiff and it more being a erector kind of focused movement you could potentially say but it depends how you kind of perform them so there's not a massive difference in my opinion an RDL on a stiff leg a stiff leg you're, you're just kind of touching the floor and what you want to bias will be influenced by your form for example if you're doing an RDL and you are allowing a bit more bend in the knee when you get into the bottom of the movement that's going to allow you to lengthen your glute uh, without your hamstring being fully stretched or the limiting factor potentially whereas if or in other words it's going to be kind of glute a bit more kind of glute dominant and a bit less hamstring whereas if you're rdl you keep your leg really or really straight meaning a soft bend in your knee a slight bend in your leg but you don't increase it as you start lowering that's going to be a bit more of a hamstring biased movement and a stiff leg uh, depending on if you cue shifting your hips back a lot will be if you don't do so and you just kind of try and pull with erectors, uh, that's going to be, as I suggested, a erector focused movement. Whereas if you just have a massive focus on pushing your hips back, it's going to be a bit more hamstring. 
So, yeah, the difference is you're kind of touching the ground with a stiff leg or an RDL, you're not. But how you execute the movement will dictate what you will train, just like any other movement, of course. And next up is training around injuries. So, quite fitting, as I've just touched on that uh, just prior in regards to how I go about doing so. But basically, with training around injuries, it, it this is quite a broad question who asked it, so it's, it's kind of hard to give a specific answer. But what I'd say is, find out what the triggers are. If those triggers are stopping it from getting better, aggravating it and worsening it, don't do them. Uh, or if you can still do them, but you need to kind of lift the load, use different execution, uh, manipulate your tempo, and like something similar, or your grip your grip, foot position, etc., then you can obviously do so. Uh, but what I'd say is don't do anything that aggravates it. Work within what your tissues can tolerate. And what I mean by that is usually when injuries occur, depending on kind of what type of injury it is, is when load exceeds tissue tolerance. For example, if your knees are sore hack squatting and your your kind of tendons, your, your like patellar tendon, let's say the tendons around about your knee can only t- tolerate, let's say, three plates and you're doing four plates and you're exceeding tissue tolerance which is going to damage them which is going to inflame them which is going to cause issues so make sure what you're doing doesn't exceed tissue tolerance pretty much and from there gradually kind of increase like performance and make sure execution stays absolutely immaculate when you're doing so and typically a few things i will and just basically titrate how much weight you're using back up over time until you're at peak strength again, but make sure you're not doing it to the point that if if it's if something's sore, if something's hurting, then you're progressing at maybe too fast a rate, or maybe it's best not to do that exercise for the time being. But ideally, if you want to kind of train productively and try and find exercises you can hit a failure point on and train effectively and safely while not aggravating whatever issue it is. Sometimes whatever injury or issue you have might be bad enough to mean you can't do any sort of exercise or any sort of movements. For example, like I tweaked my back and I couldn't really do much kind of hip hinge movements at all, or I couldn't hip hinge and I didn't bend over a row for the first week. And now for myself, I know I can do a bent over row completely fine with 100 plus kilos, but doing an RDL just doesn't, I'm not getting on with that now. So for myself, I know, right, just remove the RDL for the time being until it kind of recovers and then introduce it at a later date. So, for example, you, you'll you'll find out through experience and through kind of thinking, right, when does it feel worse in terms of does it feel worse after my pull day? Does it feel worse after back and hamstrings when I deadlift? Uh, like when does it when does it kind of get worse? If you don't feel it during it, you might feel it after. Then think, right, I'll not do that such and such movement or I'll maybe adapt my form, lighten the load accordingly. And a few things I also try and do when I have injuries I'm working around is get plenty of blood in the area prior. For example, when I was dealing with knee issues, on the leg extension, I'd done that before any sort of compound movement. And basically my my sets on the leg extension was five sets of 15. So basically like my warm-ups were all 15 reps and I just gradually increased load until I got my working set. So I basically done 15 reps, increased weight until I reached failure doing around about 15 reps and repeat that process and that helped me get my knees or keep my knees nice and healthy 
uh, and get plenty of blood in that area so I'm super warm by the time I'm touching weight that could potentially aggravate my knees. But saying that, due to kind of pre-exhausting through every single warm-up being 15 reps, that reduced load exposure and helped me reach a failure point without causing issues. And could is that an optimal way to warm up? If you're pain-free and have no injuries, definitely. Or I would say definitely not. But if you are injured, then that's going to be the best you can do in that situation. Uh, so yeah, get plenty of blood in the area prior to training. Make sure you keep on top of any sort of st- stretching and foam rolling so you've not got any excessive tightness. And uh, make sure you're controlling your movements and it's absolutely immaculate in the gym. Uh, and also, like obviously, you can look at things like joint support supplements, that sort of thing. But if your execution is horrendous and you're kind of masking that with taking a joint support supplement, you're you're missing the forest through the trees. You're you're not you're putting you're putting your efforts to waste pretty much when you could just execute your movements effectively. So hope that answered that question pretty effectively. Just basically do what you can tolerate and not gonna and what's not gonna aggravate the issue. Find ways to kind of train around it and train to failure, or still get effective reps in. Sometimes it's it's good to kind of stay shy of failure and things like when you're doing any compound movements like an RDL or a bent over row if your lower back's not great uh, but just find ways where you can get effective work in and then <clears throat> remove any movements that are kind of causing the issue or worsening it and then put them back in at a later time so next up is tips to hit your protein intake so protein first of all is one of the three macronutrients alongside carbohydrates and fat Protein we typically want around about 2 grams per kilogram to ensure we've got enough protein available to build muscle on top of other bodily processes we need protein for. If we don't have enough protein, your body's not going to kind of build new muscle instead of repairing maybe tissues inside its body. It doesn't make sense to do so. It's not going to be an efficient way of utilising protein. So it's going to prioritise like maybe repairing, repairing organ tissues like inside your body and repairing damaged muscle tissue instead of building new muscle on top of that, if that makes sense. So if you're trying to, if you're not having enough protein, then don't expect to be able to build muscle that effectively. So as for protein, it's also four grams per kilogram instead of fat, which is nine grams per, sorry, not four grams per kilogram. Uh, Four grams of fat, sorry, four grams of protein. I'm, I'm absolutely butchering this, so. Uh, I'll, I'll repeat again, 4 calories is in 1 gram of protein, whereas carbohydrates, you also have 4 calories in a gram, whereas fat, you have 9 calories in a gram, which could be an argument to keep fat and also keep fat lower and carbohydrates and protein higher when you are trying to maybe uh, manage appetite during like a dieting phase. Uh, you'll know for yourself through maybe experience, trial and error, what fills you up more, having more fat or having more carbohydrates. So protein. We want ideally two grams per kilogram and in terms of tips to hit it if your goal let's say you weigh you weigh let's say you weigh 100 kilograms just so we've got a nice even number uh, and that means that your protein goal is 200 grams so you've got that 200 gram goal work out how much times you're eating on a daily basis let's say you have four meals a day then get that protein goal and divide that by four so that would obviously be 50 grams a meal now you've got a nice figure that you know you need to kind of hit per meal to hit that protein goal by the end of the day. So that means like if you 
if maybe your first meal you only have 30 grams of protein, you're already behind the eight ball, you're already uh, behind schedule. So keeping, making sure you, you kind of keep track and have like a have whatever amount you need to therefore hit your protein goal at the end of the day, I think is key. So think about how much meals you're having, divide your protein goal by that amount of meals and aim for that per meal. Also, another tip is when you're choosing what foods to eat, pick your protein source first. What I mean by that is if you're thinking about having dinner, pick a protein source first. So if that's chicken, salmon, uh, a lean mince, uh, if that's egg whites or eggs, if that's a whey protein, pick it first, fire that in MyFitnessPal first and then fire whatever foods you're eating around that. And what I mean by that is if you maybe choose, if you just don't think about it and don't have much attention to it or just or just kind of pick random foods, then you'll probably hit your calories before you've hit your protein goal, meaning you either need to be low on your protein or overeat in regards to calories. So that's a tip into in terms of how to make sure that you that you kind of hit it. And something else you can consider is making sure you're getting lean sources, like having maybe chicken thighs, although... It's not bad having some kind of fat in your diet, as long as it's not maybe excessive. If you're dieting and you're having chicken thighs, you're going to accumulate a lot of fat with that protein source as well, which again might not be good for managing your appetite and hunger, and same below your calorie goal. So having leaner sources of protein means you don't get means you don't get like things like fats or carbohydrates alongside. I always kind of laugh when I see like protein bars in the shop or any other sort of protein food like like a peanut butter son, people will, people label it as high protein, whereas in reality, the the ratio of kind of calories that are coming from the protein is extremely low, and it's not a efficient way to get your protein. In. So aim for lean sources of protein that don't have as much fat and don't have as much carbohydrates alongside them. So hope that helps. Uh, that's kind of it in terms of kind of hitting your protein. Oh, last one is have routine, have structure and routine when it comes to hitting your protein goal. What I mean by that is, if maybe on a daily basis, like your day looks completely different, your meals look completely different, then like of course you're not hitting your protein goal because you're you're kind of winging your days. Whereas if you have maybe a setup that works, let's say you have for your what I recommend for individuals is regardless if you have like a if it fits your macros approach instead of a meal plan, it's still good to have some element of structure and routine in your food on a daily basis so what that could mean is having maybe a similar breakfast and lunch like if you keep your breakfast and lunch static you keep them exact same you make sure they're bang on then you've got less room for error for not hitting your goals you've got less moving parts you know what you'll eat will fill you up or manage your appetite depending on what phase you're in you know it will give you appropriate amount of protein and will be nutritious so if you keep them static then you're going to hit your protein goal or you're going to be more likely to sorry uh, a good example why is i'm on a meal plan for example so my food's the exact same every single meal. If I follow that, I'm not going to miss, which is the benefit of a meal plan. Whereas if it fits your macros, you could maybe log something or maybe choose foods that might not hit your protein. And it's a lot of planning. So having some meals that are maybe the same on a daily basis or you have regularly will make it much easier to hit your goal and ensure you're not kind of missing regularly. So I hope that makes sense and helps. And the next question is how to kind of handle nights out so nights out are obviously something that can be i, I don't want to say oh uh, yeah they can be detrimental towards your progress depending on how you handle them and 
like let's be honest, alcohol is not good for you. Alcohol, if you want to maximize your develop your physique development, isn't ideal for you. It's not good for you. It's not going to kind of contribute at all, really. Or well, I say at all. The only kind of way I see alcohol potentially having a positive effect of if you find it really relaxing and worth maybe the slight trade-off in terms of its effects on sleep quality and maybe your recovery. But the positive of alcohol will be, like I said, put you in a relaxed state. It might help you mentally reset and be mentally refreshed to kind of attack the rest of the week. So having maybe, so having a drink now and then is not the end of the world. In terms of where it does become detrimental is it depends how much you drink. For example, if someone has one beer or one wine or a vodka or something on a Saturday and they call it quits there, that's a lot different than if someone, let's say, has 10 drinks, they stay up until 6 in the morning, they don't drink any water alongside it, they eat absolute crap, they like get a takeaway before they're going in, etc. That's going to have a different effect. So drinking alcohol, it's not like it's not black and white, if that makes sense. It depends how you handle it, etc. And in terms of how you can handle it, uh, so some considerations when it comes to drinking is obviously our calories. We want to, or if you want to handle it effectively. The reason I say if is it's your choice how you can handle it. I'm I'm not there to tell you you need to do this or you need to do that. It's your goals. If you want to be more committed towards them or less committed towards them, it's your choice. People can live their life how they want. But a few considerations is kind of trying to make sure you're hitting your calories if you want to handle well. And what you can maybe consider is getting things like a zero sugar mixer and like a vodka or a gin or a spirit is typically low in calories. And obviously zero sugar mixers, you're not going to get much calories from them. So things like a diet Coke, uh, uh, like diet lemonade or any other kind of mixer of that sort. And if you are wanting to be extra sensible, although you're drinking, then you could potentially consider a zero-sugar mixer with no caffeine in it, something like lemonade, for example. So, yeah, we want to consider our calories. If you want to handle it well, that's a few good options. And what you can basically do is, if you want to, then just kind of remove the calories that you're going to be consuming with drink from carbohydrates and fats that you're going to be eating at the rest of the day. And then just simply drink, enjoy yourself, and then get back on track after. And if you find like you're pretty hungry from maybe leaving space and not having as much calories on the other half of the day, or throughout actual food sources because you're having calories for alcohol, then have more fruit and vegetables in those meals to add more volume to your meals to help manage hunger and appetite. And make sure you don't take the calories away from the protein just because you want to gain manage appetite and ensure we're building or retaining muscle effectively depending on what phase you're in and how far in that phase you are. So yeah we can obviously track it into calories if we want to handle it well. Another consideration is hydration. So most of the time people get hungover because they have a poor sleep afterwards and they don't hydrate themselves after, before or throughout. So if you are maybe going out or you're drinking alcohol, drink plenty of water prior you can have things like salt, which is going to help you in terms of replenishing any electrolytes you lose through drinking. Drinking has diuretic effects, meaning when you drink, you basically you urinate more, which can dehydrate you. So it's important to kind of replenish that water accordingly. So what I'd personally do 
if I was drinking and I wanted it to not really derail my progress much and I wanted to kind of stay relatively consistent, I'd, like I said, factor in my calories, drink water and probably have an electrolyte powder or salt before I go out. I'd probably do that before bed and I'd do it first thing in the morning. And I'd make sure I try and get a reasonable night's sleep so I don't feel super rough from it. And then from there, like what I say to clients as well is it's not the night out that's the problem, it's the effects of that night out. Meaning if you go on a night out and that means you don't train the next day if it's a training day or ideally you want to time it so the day after your night out's a rest day so you don't have to train rough. But let's say you miss your steps, you don't train the night before going out, let's say you overeat your calories when you're out and on the day after and you just sit in bed all day then that's going to affect your progress whereas if maybe you feel a bit rough in the morning but you get up crack on with your normal routine you get your meals prepped for the day you get some steps out the way and then you just kind of crack on and get on with it although you feel a bit rough and then you can relax at night that's going to have much less of a negative effect so it's about how you kind of handle them because Drinking's not going to ruin your progress. It's how you can handle drinking that will ruin your progress. And if you, let's say you're in a dieting phase, you can go out, you can have more food at the weekend, you can have a night out, but it just means you need to be on the ball and work ridiculously hard the rest of the time. So, hope that helps. And next up, someone's asked, should you have like a different pep deck or a different fly in each push day? So, what... What, first of all, what's the benefit of a fly? So, fly is basically an isolation exercise to target our, our pecs. They'll obviously work things like your bicep and forearm very slightly, just holding that position with your arm just slightly bent or maybe even straight, depending on how you perform them. Uh, so, do we want maybe a different pec deck in each push day? Uh, something you can consider is do you even need a pec deck in both push days? If someone's maybe relatively new to training and you've not trained super long i'd opt for doing more presses instead of doing a pec fly uh, there's a there's a caveat to that which we'll get to but the reason being is think about how much muscles you work during a press you're going to be working probably more muscles you're probably going to be loading your musculature where it grows best as well in that stretch position so you're going to be working your shoulders and triceps more while working your chest when you're doing any sort of kind of compound pressing of some sort. Whereas a peg deck, you're not working as much kind of musculature, so it's a bit less time efficient. You're not getting as much out in movement. So that's something to consider. So if you can recover from it, meaning muscle soreness-wise and uh, like a central nervous system fatigue-wise, then it might be better just doing a peg deck maybe on one push day or once a week. Uh, or you might not even need to do it at all as a beginner. Do I think you need kind of two peg decks? Probably not. It depends. It depends what kit you have access to. Uh, because just like any question, it's not black and white. And like, what do you enjoy? What do you stick to? What do you feel you can do yourself? Like, run it. See how it feels. Do you feel like it helps you progress those movements more effectively? Do you enjoy it more? Does it help you put more effort in? Or do you feel like you'd be better just using the one? For example, you could use the same machine, but both push days benefit of that is it means you're repeating the same movement pattern so you're going to get efficient at it you're going to get stronger at it faster but the caveat to that is it might stall faster so personally the way my push sessions are structured i do push twice a week and i've only got a fly in one session and i'd rather that i think flies are boring i think doing uh doing big presses is going to contribute 
a bit more towards your chest development than flies, just due to the position they're loaded in, and as well as that, like having more the musculature, you're going to train throughout, like your your shoulders and triceps, like I touched on. The only caveat to that is if someone doesn't have like a great time targeting their chest or feeling their chest during any sort of movements, then putting a fly at the start of your session or doing a fly as a whole might help in terms of your ability to use your chest. So sometimes people just need to do things like an isolation movement to kind of feel that muscle to to get a good kind of internal kind of feel, internal mind-muscle connection, which might help them use that when they're going on to do their pressing movements. Uh, but it could be just your execution on those pressing movements. So it depends. It depends what like what your sessions look like, if you enjoy it, etc. Like I said, many factors. Just like most questions, it's sadly not black and white, but I don't think you need to chest flies for, for sure. Like, especially if you've not got two good options, because variation's not always better. What I mean by that is, if maybe instead of having a good chest, let's say you've only got cables and dumbbells available, then let's say a dumbbell cable fly hurts your shoulder, or sorry, let's say a dumbbell fly hurts your shoulders, whereas a cable fly feels absolutely amazing, then why? You don't need variation. You don't need both of them just for the sake of variation. Sometimes variation can be worse. If variation means you're picking a suboptimal movement or a movement you don't get on with, then why would that be better and lead to better progress? I'd rather see someone repeat a movement they get on very well with than repeat a, a movement maybe one or rep, then repeat the movement less frequently and have another variation that they don't get on well with and that causes them maybe joint issues or maybe they just don't get much out of that target muscle or maybe the machine's just poorly made etc so i'd rather see someone repeat an exercise more frequently if it works because variation is not always better for that reason so that's all i'm going to cover in this episode going to keep it relatively kind of short and concise uh, i want to kind of when i'm making this episode answer them in a bit more of an in-depth format so people can refer back to and so I can give you plenty of value in doing so. So if you've got any questions for the podcast then just message my Instagram uh, at Charlie J. Cuthbert or the Improvement Podcast. Drop them in the description on the YouTube or in the comments sorry on the YouTube video. And thank you very much for everyone watching or listening.